Ok, parfait. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. To anyone working in computer science or cryptology, Shafi Goldwasser needs no introduction. Whenever you buy something online, your transactions are secured using methods that she developed. Among many other prizes, she has received the Turing Award, which is known as the Nobel Prize of Computing. After studying mathematics and science, Shafi went on to do a PhD in computer science at Berkeley. She's now a professor at MIT, where she's been since 1983. Incredibly, at the same time, she's also a professor at the Weizmann Institute in Israel and the director of the Simons Institute for the Theory of Computing at Berkeley. And Shafi essentially founded cryptology as a theoretical field. Before her work, everything in cryptology was a heuristic. It just kind of worked. Her first breakthrough was the invention of what are called zero-knowledge proofs, together with Silvio Micali and Charles Rakoff. She showed that a person can make a claim and prove it without revealing any other information. So, for example, if I come to you and tell you that I have the password, then using Shafi's approach, I can demonstrate to you that I do indeed have the password without ever revealing what exactly that password is. The way it works is in a kind of interactive manner, and importantly, there's a probabilistic side to it, which was a radical new and crucial creative idea for the field of cryptology. Shafi's scientific creativity has changed the way we communicate securely, and we can't wait to get started. So Shafi, how is it that you work your magic? Uh, yes. So first of all, thank you for having me here. And I wanted to say that you're giving me a little bit too much credit. I don't think I'm the first one thought about these questions, but certainly had results that are meaningful in the field. And I'm one of the first people. But how do I work my magic? So let me tell you a little bit about my process, and I guess that's a process more broadly in uh, computer science theory, which is the field that I'm part of. So we start with, or I start, there are two modes, you know, there's one mode, let's say that I think is more suitable for graduate students or a postdoc, or maybe also a seasoned researcher at a time when they're not already kind of deep into a field, but they are maybe in a time that they are looking for a topic or that they are just sort of uh, not completely absorbed by what they're doing. And for me, that's happened quite a few times. And then usually I think it's happened that I went to a talk or somebody told me about a question that they were wondering about or that they're worried about something in the field, like some insecurity or some trend. And then That question provokes, in a way that very hard to describe, some thoughts about the matter. And there's an idea. An idea comes up. Like, wouldn't it be interesting if you could do, in the case of my PhD work, I was in a class with a professor, and he was talking about Alice and Bob, which are usually used as the names for A and B, or sender and receiver. But in this case, one lived in the West Coast, one lived in the East Coast, and they had to decide who gets the dog. And uh, <laughs> so they, they decided they're going to flip a coin, except they were doing this over the phone. And, you know, 
one can just flip the code and say, hey, heads, and, and that's it, because you don't trust them. So how would you be able to flip a coin so it's really 50-50 heads or tails between two people who don't trust each other? And I thought it was, like, fascinating. And I had an idea, you know, or maybe you could do it like this. And then do it like this meant that there's some function where you can compute this function and you can hide some bit, uh, which the value of the bit is like zero or one, which is like heads or tails. And the other guy, you send it to someone and then they will guess what the bit is, but it's a hard bit to guess. And then you tell them and if they were correct, then it's heads. If they were wrong, it's tails. But that's not the point. The point is that it was just sort of an idea. And then it turned out that you had to prove something and you had to use mathematics to prove it. You had to define even the notion, what does it mean to prove it? And was it mean that it's really 50-50. It's not exactly 50-50. Basically, you can't tell it apart, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's not fixed in advance. So there's a lot of defining. Of what does that informal idea look like as a mathematical question? And then you don't know what the impact is going to be. But in particular, for that idea there that something is hidden and it's either zero or one or heads or tails, with probability close to 50-50 is a very meaningful a significant thing to do for secure commerce, it turns out. But no one talked about secure commerce, and that wasn't the motivation. So you're saying that one way of creativity is that you start with a question or with a statement like, wouldn't it be great if we could do X, where X is something that you have no idea how to do or that even seems impossible. And then you think about, you know, how could you make the impossible possible? Is that what you mean? Yes. As a researcher, you want to ask a question, or at least you want to answer a question, because this is just one way. A lot of other people, the questions have been asked already, and they try to do, to solve, or maybe to solve better than people have solved it before, more better in some sense, in some measure, maybe more efficiently, maybe more securely, maybe in a different way, just more simple. But no matter what, whether you came up with a question or you're answering somebody else's question, you want to solve something that is not known. So you're doing something that was thought to be impossible before. And you mentioned that part of the process that you had to do for, in that particular case was to turn the informal idea into a mathematical formulation. Do you think generally that's something that you have to do before you have any idea of how to solve it? Or do you need the idea before you can start doing this formalization step? So I think people are very different. So in this particular example that I was telling you, I was working with someone else, with Silvio, which I got the Toy Award with also. And, you know, it was interesting because he was like defining sort of what properties does he want. And I came up with the idea of how to do it sort of as an intuition. So people are different that way. Some people, they want the formality and then they look for an instantiation, you know, of what satisfies the definition. And some people might start from an idea where they think this would work, but they haven't really defined even exactly what does it mean to work. And then you come up with the formal definition. I think both ways are done in mathematics all the time. And do you think it's kind of a taste in how to approach problems? Mm, I think it's kind of ability. So some people have one ability, others have another, and maybe somebody has both. And if you had all the abilities in the world, maybe the right thing to do is first to understand very deeply the concept, to define it, and then instantiate it. But it is a very organized process. I've rarely seen that done. So you're saying mathematicians are not very orderly and organized? No, I didn't say that. I said that I <laughs> am not very orderly and organized. But I do believe that even most mathematicians, they start from an example and then they generalize. 
So there's this beautiful book by Rona. Rona was a mathematician in Israel. And the book is about mathematics and poetry. And he does this parallel between mathematics. He shows all kinds of things. Like he has a poem, and then he talks about a mathematical approach, which is similar to how this poem was written. And he has this one place where he says that mathematics and poetry is very different. He says that both of them start with a very concrete either example, let's say in math, or an emotion. But the mathematician, then they generalize, generalize, generalize. At the end, they have a theorem you can't, unless they're very good, you can't even tell what the concrete example was. Whereas the <laughs> poem sort of distills things by giving it a personal personification. And his example is, suppose you want to talk about loneliness. So how would a poet talk about loneliness, even though loneliness is an emotion, you know, you could talk about generally as a state of being, they would talk about a man walking under a light post in the middle of the night mm -hmm. alone. So it's a fabulous example, right? You really want to make it kind of simple and concrete, whereas in mathematics you go abstract. So I think everybody starts from the concrete, even people that don't achieve it. And you know, Shafi, you talked about how you take something that is incredibly difficult. It's, it's seemingly impossible. It makes me think of solving puzzles. You know, I grew up uh, with a dad who would always, on long car rides, would ask us these uh, logical, mathematical puzzles. And each one has the same flavor where it just seems impossible. And then you can find a kind of trick. And once you have that trick, it, it actually becomes very simple, almost trivial once you know the trick. And I'm wondering, is that maybe kind of like uh, your approach where you, you look for a kind of simplicity to the problem? Yes, I think that to some extent that's true. Let's just try to think, what are we trying to do here? Let's understand the core difficulty. Let's understand why does it seem difficult? What is the problem really about? Yeah, so maybe that's similar to this puzzle solving. Although my parents really were not the puzzle solving uh, giving or solving. <laughs> you know, I talked with your uh, former student, Yael Tauman. She's a, oh, yeah. a good friend of ours. Oh. <laughs> and she told me something really funny about something that you did with Silvio as you were receiving the Turing Award, that you read all of the rejection letters that you received oh, yeah. about your work. <laughs> there were many, yeah. Especially there for this paper that they quoted in the award. Seriously. Whoa. So given that you received so many rejections, what was it about it that, that sort of led you to persevere and, and believe in the idea? Well, that's a very good question. And I'm not sure that I can take credit for it. Maybe partially, but I don't think I would have persisted that much if I was alone in the work. Because I've had other work that's been rejected. And after about twice, it's like, okay, forget it. I don't care. But I was further along in my career, you know, later. So I think the fact that we were a group and uh, two of us and that we were young and we were really mattered to us very much that people will understand the importance of this work. And we loved the idea. You know, we had the rash and possibly justified approach that they were wrong and they don't know what they're talking about. And, and it was very much a thing that you need more than one person to kind of pump this, right? You can't tell yourself things like that endlessly, but you can tell it to each other. You talked about persistence once you finish the work and you want to tell everyone about it. But in the way of getting to the finished work, is persistence also important? Absolutely. Because you can get some partial answer, but that's never going to be satisfying. You have to ask more questions and more questions. What else can you ask and what else can you prove? And what does this mean? That's persistence as well. It's like taking this process to its conclusion. And not only that, you know, if I have a graduate student and let's say they did some work and then they get scooped, this happens a lot these days. And then they are like, oh, I got scooped. That's too bad. And then the truth is, I don't think 
anyone ever gets scooped 100% in the sense that what are the chances somebody did things exactly the way you did it? Very low. Mm. So if you say, okay, this is what they did, but what I think is the following, and my work is different this way, and then persist even with work that has been, in some sense, the main question has been solved, you always can find differences in understanding, actually, how your work is different, and that enables you to go further. But that is a sort of persistence. Before you talked about how the rigor of solving a problem sort of comes later. And that is very similar to what Martin and I have been talking about in our work of distinguishing between day science and night science. So day science is, especially in the life sciences where Martin and I work, is more of the hypothesis testing part where you kind of have a clear idea of what you want to do. And it's now a matter of seeing if it's true, you know, collecting the data and doing the formal testing. What's the p-value? Can we really say that we have evidence to support this claim. But night science is the more imaginative realm where you're coming up with that idea that you're going to test later. And so I'm wondering if that sort of translates to math as well. And in cryptography, it should be something general, how we solve problems. It could be. Yeah, there's sort of more of the heavy lifting that happens at night. So I think from that point of view, it's different than life science because you guys really have to set up the experiment and there's a labor of going through the experiments, and at least in a wet lab, I guess. I don't think we have that, but it's sort of less talking about it and more sitting down to do calculations to try to prove a statement. But it's still with paper and pencil. Now, if you're doing a programming project, so there's also building a system component, then perhaps there is this debugging and writing the code, but I'm not sure that's harder to tell you to choose. But I haven't done that in many, many years. I did it last time that I wrote code is when I was a master's student. And Shafi, when you're working with graduate students and some ideas are coming up, how do you distinguish the ideas that you really want to pursue from the ones that maybe are less your style? Have you developed a kind of taste, as Martin was calling it earlier, for what kind of problems maybe should be left for others and what's more your speed? Of course. And with graduate students also, each one has their own unique talents. And some people are faster at this. I think I'm not bad at sort of understanding what people's skills are and taste. And it's pretty clear that people are very different this way. You know, what it was suitable for them, how far they're going to go with it. And sometimes, you know, somebody says an idea and it just is boring. It might work, but it just <laughs> is unappealing. You know, there's nothing beautiful about it or nothing intellectually kind of stimulating or sparkling. And I think I have less interest in that. So you just said that, you know, some ideas are just boring and there's no beauty in them. Yes. Can you try to describe that in a little bit more detail? Like what for you is beautiful about a mathematical idea or a question? Maybe the element of surprise that you didn't think that this is how it would work or that it's surprising that this, fits together this way or that it, it has like this aha thing it's like oh yeah that is the right the way to define it that is but it's not an obvious way so there's something surprising about it you know like they say that a good joke is one where you catches you off guard so it's maybe similar to that that's what i mean about having a taste and if you see a whole talk and that happens a lot and it's an important result but there was not a moment that they were able to inspire that feeling within me then it's I guess probably less to my taste. It doesn't mean it's less good work, it's less to my taste. Shafi, earlier on, 
you were saying that when you have to solve mathematical problems, you're saying that at least in your work, the discussions with your coworkers is, is central to coming to the right idea and to solving the problem. For me, yes. And is it typically with just one person or, or with a whole group of people? I think it would typically be with one or two, maybe three people. And in different stages, you usually in a room, I don't think you'd have more than three people, but you know, you do want something and then you, maybe you didn't complete it and you tell someone else and they had another idea of how to take this project to another place. And then you all might collaborate together. So the work combines different pieces that have been done by different people. I think it's good to work with just a pair of people because Many times the, the project sort of shifts and now you're facing a very sort of different problem than maybe the problem you thought you were working on, given this new insight that you've had. And I think if you're with a small group, you're more agile. You can make this big change. Has it ever happened to you that maybe the person you're working with resists reframing the problem the way? Sure. But then those are usually with the people that I don't work with. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you don't want to work with them. Anymore. No, I mean, people are uh, resistant all the time or they don't understand your process, or they're not comfortable with it, which might be totally valid, but it's not the right people for you. I mean, I've seen this with graduate students. You know, it's more about feeling comfortable expressing your opinions and your ideas than anything else in determining whether it's a good combination. So when you take on new people, when you take new people into your group, you said that one of the things that are important for working together is that you're comfortable expressing ideas with them or they're comfortable to express ideas with you. Is there also something about their creativity that you're looking for and the people that you hire or that you decide to work with? I think that even when you talk to people, you can tell, you describe to them an idea and you see if they ask good questions, right? And if they ask questions that you can answer or that makes you think about something you haven't thought about before, it's clear that some people talking to them makes your mind work better, right? I think it's very universal. And Jeffrey, in thinking about how you yourself came to the field of cryptology, I'm wondering, did you kind of have an affinity for probabilistic view of things, you know, a probabilistic bent, or did studying cryptology lead you to think more in a probabilistic way? I think the idea of randomized algorithm, using coin tosses or, or randomness to make decisions in order to circumvent some problem is something that is uh, very appealing to me, even beforehand. So there's primality tests. It's a, primal, it's a probabilistic primality test, like testing whether something is a prime or composite. Or there's a lot of things that somehow, if you don't use coins, if you don't use randomness, if you don't think probabilistically, they're just impossible. But all of a sudden, like by tossing a coin, you can break some symmetry or it breaks out of something. There's this very famous problem called consensus. You've got N people and they want to agree. And how do you agree when everybody has different opinions? And coin tossing actually makes it possible when it, you can prove it's impossible in a setting when there's no clocks. If there's a clock, everybody looks at the same clock. It's also a way to synchronize and therefore reach consensus. But if there is no clock, you can prove that you can't do it. But if you have a coin, you can toss coins if you can, which is kind of fascinating. The idea is that everybody tosses coins and it's eventually, with high probability, everybody's going to toss the same coin. And that enables you to synchronize. Shafi, I would like to go back a little bit on the process of your science. So we talked a lot about, you know, what creativity could mean in your field. 
But when you think about situations where you needed to be creative, where you had a problem and you didn't quite know how to approach it, is there anything, any method or any trick that you have used in some cases or any pattern? I think probably the thing that most helps me is to go to talk by someone that I have experience with, that they're great speakers and that they say something interesting. And something about listening to interesting ideas makes it possible for me to be in this place where I'm like, my mind is, is happy and is able to understand and think. And then it also is able to create. Okay, so that also applies if what that person is talking about is not related to the problem that you're working on. Oh, no, no, always unrelated. I'm not saying that I'm okay. going to go and listen to someone who might give me an idea. I'm saying that it would put my mind in a place where ideas flow. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah really interesting. I mean, it, it kind of suggests that the environment is so crucial that let's say we would put you on a deserted island, then um, the prospects of new ideas would be very limited, right? Since That's interesting, maybe. You know what? I don't know about a desert island, but my guess is that I wouldn't be interested in doing science on a desert island. But uh, maybe. <laughs> you would have bigger concerns. I would have bigger concerns, right? <laughs> you wouldn't be like, a, I'm not going to be writing papers. But yeah, for me, it's a lot about the environment. I don't necessarily think that's true for everybody, but it's true for me. If I work with someone who's suspicious and always putting my ideas down, it's a no-go. I'm just not going to have ideas. So for you, science is a social activity? Not all the process, but certainly a lot of it is. The beginning of it, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's the beginning that you think where the interaction is most important. Yeah, maybe not the first moment, but, you know, a lot of the beginning. Yeah, I think many of us have this feeling when we attend a conference of just like euphoria of having so many new ideas, and at least if it's a good conference. Right, right, right. So uh, what is it? It's somehow your mind is in this space, right? The things because you're excited about what you hear and it's enjoyable and, and your mind is relaxed and believes, I don't know, in the ability to have ideas. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, I know what you mean also about how it doesn't have to be in the same field. It could be a totally unrelated yeah, totally. Uh, lecture. It's just the kind of spirit of, uh, I don't know, some kind of an analogy of, look, this person solved the problem by doing this clever trick. I wonder, there must be a clever trick on what I'm working on too. Possibly. You know, like I remember I saw some... Uh, was the guy who invented the Segway. He gave this talk about invention versus innovation. And he said this thing that often in his career, he was trying to solve a problem. And he realized he had to kind of step back and say, okay, what really is the problem? So rather than figuring out a technical solution, to try to understand what the problem was, and then maybe figure out a whole new solution. And somehow it really spoke to me. And I took it in the following way is that when I teach, every once in a while, there's a lecture that I'm supposed to give. And I actually realize that I don't understand how the method works. Okay. And so usually you kind of like knock your head against the wall until you get it. Right. <laughs> and then there's another solution. And that is, you know what, maybe I'm just going to talk about something else. So in other words, another topic, which I think is just as important and teaches them a valuable skill. And right now I can't figure this other thing. Let's just leave it and do something else. So I know it's not the same, but to me it was a radical discovery really helped my teaching. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I think I'm going to use that trick in the future. I think everybody should. Not all yes. the time, but every once in a while, there's these moments you can't do it. Okay, so do something different. Absolutely. Well, Shafi, thank you 
so much for this awesome discussion. We really enjoyed it. Totally. I mean, we learned a lot about your process. So that's really, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I'd be happy to hear it, you know, when you have a final product. Yeah, we will you send will. it to you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thank you.